This episode of Immigrants' Journeys is a little different than previous episodes. My guest on this episode is Kevin Gregg, an immigration attorney. I wanted to learn more about the immigration process, so I reached out to Kevin, who hosts his own podcast called Immigration Review. Check it out. The intro music is an excerpt from Immigration Man, performed by David Crosby and Graham Nash, written by Graham Nash and produced by Bill Halverson, David Crosby, and Graham Nash, source Rhino Atlantic. I feel that the lyrics capture the topic of this episode. The verse, for example, I got stopped by the immigration man. He says he doesn't know if he can let me in. That seems to be a seemingly simple plea, to which appears to be a complicated answer. I hope you enjoy it. I got stopped by the immigration man. He said he doesn't know if he can let me in. Let me in. Immigration man, can I cross the line and break? I can stay another day. Let me in. Immigration man. Kevin has been in immigration law and litigation for nearly a decade. His experience working behind the bench for judges gives him a unique approach representing clients in court. Kevin is a partner at Kurtzban, Kurtzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt. He follows immigration decisions across the 13 U.S. Circuit Courts and the U.S. Supreme Court. He uses his podcast to summarize the cases for all to enjoy. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Santiago. Thank you for having me. I very much appreciate it. That's right. I'm a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt. We're based in Coral Gables, Florida. I am the San Diego partner. The founding partner, Ira Kurzban, is kind of the godfather of immigration. So I'm honored to work with him and for him and to learn from him. I'm also happy to be on your podcast. As you know, the reason you invited me, I assume, is I have a podcast of my own called Immigration Review, where every week I'm analyzing published circuit decisions and Supreme Court decisions that are changing immigration law every week. I've been at it for about three and a half years. It is very much a labor of love. I've probably analyzed, I don't know, 1,200 decisions at this point. Every week it's between two and 11 decisions, and each one changes immigration law in some way. So... It's a lot of fun to be in the immigration podcast world, and I'm always happy to talk about more base-level immigration issues and additionally complex developments in immigration law. Well, that's great. I'm really excited. Before we dive into this topic, I wanted listeners to know that even though Kevin is an attorney, the information shared in this podcast is meant for education and not meant as legal advice. Yeah, I think it's important to remember, Santiago, that everything I say during this podcast that can't be construed as legal advice that before you do anything with immigration or in the law, you must consult with an attorney. And so I'm just trying to be helpful. And it's possible that I misstate something unintentionally. I hope I don't. I do my best to think before I speak. But of course, before you do anything with immigration, you must consult with an immigration attorney. I listened to several of your podcast episodes. So I'm really excited to have you on this podcast to maybe bring it down a level for more of a lay kind of conversation. Yes. Some of the decisions get very high level jurisdiction, these concepts that you learn in law school. But I do my best to try to make it accessible to non-attorney listeners. My mother, for example, a retired nurse, has been listening since episode number one, and she can talk the talk now. I think if you listen to enough episodes, 
the themes, the ideas, the concepts start repeating themselves and you really do start to think like an immigration lawyer. And sometimes I do dive really deep at a lower level, at a layman's level on some cases. That is the line I try to walk with the show. How deep do you get and still make it accessible to non-lawyers where at the same time getting deep enough that attorney listeners also want to listen. So that's the line I'm walking. And I encourage you to listen to more and then you will become an expert immigration attorney yourself. Before we get into some of those topics, I wanted to learn a little bit about you. What got you into immigration law to begin with? I say this to, to law students all the time. I, I think there's a, quite a bit of luck in law, probably, in, I'm sure, in life. And then doing good things with the luck provided your way. As a first-year law student at Boston University, I was a research assistant for a professor who did macro immigration issues, like, you know, large refugee problems all over the world. Not so much U.S. immigration law. But during my second year of law school, where it's really important to get a, an internship that can turn into a job, honestly, I just had a really good interview at the Equal Justice Works Conference in D.C. that October of my second year with a recruiter from the Department of Justice, Office of Immigration Litigation, which is pretty much the most important immigration office in the country, they argue these immigration decisions before the Circuit Courts of Appeals, which are the very important appeals courts just below the Supreme Court. So they're the big leagues of immigration. And I like to think that I'm smart. I like to think that I'm good. But to be candid, I did not deserve that internship at that time, at least with my immigration knowledge. Maybe I like to think I was a good law student, but I knew nothing about immigration. And yet I got that internship with, you know, with about a dozen other people. And that made my career. Now, once I got that internship, I actually went back to BU and I begged the person in charge of our immigration clinic, the professor, to let me in even though I hadn't taken Immigration 101 because I knew I was in deep trouble. I needed to learn some immigration. And that spring, I did take his clinic, and it was a steep learning curve. And then I went to Office of Immigration Litigation in D.C. for my summer and then into my fall, so six months, interning for DOJ in D.C. And I worked my butt off, and I hope I did a good job. And out of that internship, I became quite competitive for the attorney general's honors program right after law school, in which essentially I went to go be what we call a judicial law clerk and attorney advisor to an immigration court. And I was placed in San Diego, which was also awesome. But that is not a plan you can do. I mean, I would tell law students, you know, take immigration law as soon as you can and make your connections in the immigration world. And most of the interns I talk to at this point are well more advanced than me because they know early on that they want immigration. I kind of came to it later. And then to finish out that story, at the time, the Attorney General Honors Program position was only two years, as judicial clerkships usually are limited. Now they're permanent. But at the time, it was only two years. And as with many young lawyers, I very much wanted a federal clerkship to go work for the kind of judge that is appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And I got that opportunity after my attorney general honors program position, in part because I had worked at that point a law clerk for two years. Everything leads to itself. But that has nothing to do with immigration, a federal clerkship. Very few immigration type cases come before a federal judge. They're more constitutional issues. 
arguments about lots of money with diverse plaintiffs from many states and corporations, that kind of thing. And I wasn't sure I was going to come back to immigration. When President Trump took office, Kevin saw an opportunity in immigration law given the political shift. He wanted to align himself with someone who would be at the forefront of legal immigration battles and challenges. Oh, wait a minute. Ira Kerr's ban is based in Miami. I was in Miami at the time. I know Ira Kerr's ban because everybody knows the Ira Kerr's ban in immigration. So I sent them an email and I guess the rest is history. So thank you, Donald Trump, for bringing me back into immigration. One thing I wanted to do was to create maybe a framework for folks who are not familiar with immigration. Because when I think of immigration, even running my podcast where I interview immigrants from all over the world, and even folks from the United States that expatriate or immigrate to other countries, I really don't have a clear understanding of what it is. And when I started preparing for this interview, I started realizing, you know, there's citizenship, which is what I thought immigration was all about. But then there's other aspects of immigration. Not everybody wants to come to the United States to be a citizen. So I was curious, what are maybe some high-level categories that we might be able to double-click into that people can start to put a framework around the topic of immigration? You talk about immigration out of the United States. That's not something that I do. But I think it's important for your listeners to know that the net immigration to and from the United States, from Mexico, is about zero. That is, there are as many Americans immigrating to Mexico as there are Mexicans trying to come into America. Now, of course, that's only Mexicans. It's not accounting for the entire world coming through Mexico to try to immigrate to America. Well, that's interesting. So the high-level categories of people trying to come to America, we have parolees, asylum seekers, non-immigrants, immigrants, and citizens, naturalization applicants. And I can take those one by one. And so a lot of those are all legal terms, as is the term alien. That is a legal term, but we just don't use it that much because it's kind of antiquated. But it is a legal term, and it gets complicated when you have legal terms. So let's start with parolees. The Department of Homeland Security has the authority to parole in temporarily really anybody they want to for humanitarian purposes. Let's say, for example, you have a child from Mexico who is suffering from this horrible form of cancer and all of her family, all of her grandparents, her parents are dead. Her grandparents live in America. Maybe she doesn't actually have a path to get to America on a visa, but for humanitarian purposes, she can only get this cancer treatment in America. Let's say the Department of Homeland Security might parole in that child for that medical care. That person is just here as long as DHS says you can be here and then you got to leave or we will deport you. Another way people are paroled in, for example, we get people who come to the border who are paroled in to cooperate with the U.S. government in criminal investigations. Maybe the DEA or DOJ is investigating a drug cartel in Guatemala and a Guatemala comes to the border, says, here I am. I'm here to help. And by the way, protect me. So that person might get paroled in the Biden administration has expanded parole to encompass entire countries so long as certain qualifications are met, such as you have a sponsor in America, and they're targeting countries in the Western Hemisphere that are a complete disaster at the moment, like Haiti, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, those countries, they have these special parole programs, and they're limited, and they're getting challenged in court. But those people are only permitted to be in America for as long as their parole is. The other type of people who can 
come into America under the law are asylum applicants. The law permits people to come to the U.S. border at a port of entry, official port of entry, and say, I am fearful of coming back to my country. Can I get asylum in America? Now, there's a whole screening process, interviews. There's a whole procedural framework that, quite frankly, every presidential administration has been changing since the dawn of time. When you have an asylum application pending, you are allowed to remain in the United States. Now, not all asylum applicants come to a port of entry like they're supposed to. Some of them sneak into the country illegally, or they don't sneak in illegally at all. They come in with some sort of non-immigrant visa that I will get to in a second, and they overstay. So they came in legally, but they stayed longer than they're supposed to, and then they apply for asylum. U.S. law allows that as well, as does, I'm pretty sure, the asylum law of all countries. If you're in America, no matter how you got here, you can apply for asylum. The Biden administration, like the Trump administration before it, is actually trying to change that a bit, but they were just enjoined by a federal court two weeks ago because it doesn't comply with a treaty that the U.S. signed in the 1960s or the law that Congress wrote based on that treaty in the 1980s. And so... It depends a bit on the presidential administration sometimes. It is known that hundreds of non-citizen asylum seekers die in the desert bordering the United States every year trying to sneak into this country. And it is known that if you're going to sneak in, you have to use an international drug cartel because they own every inch of U.S.-Mexico territory for illegal things like sneaking in America. You're going to pay some smuggling organization like thousands of dollars. And so certain administrations like the Obama administration made it known that if you come to a port of entry and you have a credible fear, we're going to let you in to have your fear adjudicated. Now, the Trump administration kind of stopped that and then COVID happened and a lot of other things, but kind of pushes those people from the port of entry through the Texas desert the Arizona desert, to sneak in illegally to try to get the same thing, that is their asylum application heard. And so that's asylum seekers. Another group are the non-immigrants, the people trying to come to America temporarily, almost always for, well, either for work or tourism purposes. For example, a B-2 visa, all these visas, all these non-immigrant visas have letters. So a B-2 is the tourist visa. And if you get a tourist visa, it's good for 10 years at a time, usually. But you can only come in for six months at a time, just over 10 years. So, you know, you get people that come in for a couple months and then they come back and nine months later for a couple months. You're allowed to do that with a 10-year tourist visa. Related to tourist visas actually is the visa waiver people. We call it ETSTA. And those are almost universally Western European countries and Japan. That is, these people from England, for example, don't need a visa to enter America temporarily. They can just enter, just like Americans can enter those countries without a visa. Now, it's the same concept. You can only be coming for tourist purposes and you have to leave after a couple of months. But that's similar to the tourist visas. But some countries that we deem, I guess, you know, safe from overstaying don't even need visas. They just need to be qualified under the visa waiver program. There are other sorts of non-immigrants, really the whole alphabet. A visas, for example, are like ambassadors and diplomats. C and D visas are for crewmen, people on ships coming to port. 
E-visas are for investors and other type of workers. F-visas are for students. People come in temporarily to study. Then they study for years and they're here legally on their F-visa so long as they're studying. J-visas are like interns and camp counselors, that kind of thing. L-visas are for managers who are in a supervisory executive manager position for a company abroad that has a U.S. affiliate or parent company, and they're coming to America to then be a manager for the parent company. And so that's a more of a high-level immigrant, as you can imagine. By definition, it's, a, it's like a corporate professional. Yeah, and so the list goes all the way up to U visas, although the U and the S visas are more for people in America. <laughs> so that, those are the people coming from outside the U.S., and they come in temporarily. As I alluded to, you can actually get a temporary visa if you're already in America, usually so long as you came in legally, although not necessarily. For example, a U visa is for the victims of crime or witnesses to crime who help law enforcement solve that crime. And then they get a certification from law enforcement that they helped, and that can provide them a path to a non-immigrant visa and eventually a green card. T visas, victims of trafficking, they can get a visa if they meet these very onerous requirements. And so those are all of the non-immigrant temporary visas, but some of them have a path to that permanent, you know, gold standard of a green card. If you're outside the United States trying to come in, you're trying to get an immigrant visa as opposed to a non-immigrant visa. Or if you're in America already and you're trying to get that green card. We call that adjustment of status. And that is a sense, those are two different names and two different paths to a green card. Now to get it, it's the same. It's just how you're doing it. You're either interviewing at a consular post abroad, or you're trying to adjust status and change status in America. But the paths are the same. The historic path to get a green card is through a family member. If, for example, you're married to a U.S. citizen or you have a U.S. citizen child over the age of 21, you have a potential immediate path to a green card. Now, if you're outside of America, then there's really no qualifications there. If you're inside America, there might be some other hurdles you need to jump over. For example, in 97, Congress changed the law such that even if you're married to a U.S. citizen, if you didn't initially enter the United States legally, at least through a parole, then you can't actually adjust status to a green card, even if you're married to a U.S. citizen. But so there are some qualifications, but that is the historic one. We call that chain migration, for example. Interesting note, Melania Trump's parents were beneficiaries of chain migration. Their daughter, Melania, got her citizenship and then petitioned for her parents. That happens all the time in America, and it's completely legal. Now, you can also get a family-based green card if you have like a sibling who is a citizen or a parent who is a lawful permanent resident or things like this. Those are subcategories, but those categories are significantly delayed, and so you have to wait a long time for those ones. Other ways of getting that green card are through investor programs. One of the more popular one is the EB-5 program. Essentially, if you invest, I believe it's between $900,000 and $1.2 million at this point, depending on the type of project, if you invest that amount of money into a qualifying U.S. project and create enough jobs, you can 
get green cards for you and your family. You're essentially buying green cards. You're investing in America, and that's the reward. So those are the green card paths, and there are other ones, but they're also limited. You know, stepping back, if you are a poor individual from Honduras, for example, with no family in America, you don't have a path to getting an immigrant visa or a non-immigrant visa. You don't have any employer or family member to sponsor you. And there's no company, of course, that's going to sponsor you in America for even a non-immigrant visa. I mean, this is assuming, you know, you're a regular worker like my ancestors were in Eastern Europe without any real ties to America, just trying to come over. It was a lot easier back then. You just had to prove you didn't have tuberculosis. <laughs> but now you don't really have a path. You do have a path to apply for a tourist visa, but there's a high likelihood that tourist visa will be denied because you're a poor individual from a country with historic overstays in America. And so they're going to assume that you too will overstay and they'll probably deny you that visa. And so for people from those countries, the only real path to coming to America is to come to the U.S. border and claim asylum. As the law allows, if you actually have a fear of persecution in your country. There is actually something called the diversity visa lottery. It's a, literally a lottery for visas, for immigrant visas, for green cards. And it's a worldwide lottery that people win and they get a chance to come to America with their family if they win the lottery. But that is literally a lottery, not something you can really rely upon. People win it, though. And so those are the that's a high overview of all of the type of ways to come to America or stay in America. And once you're in America with a green card for a certain amount of years and you meet other requirements, then you can apply to naturalize if you want. You have to have that green card and meet those requirements to naturalize. Related to that, it's possible that people born abroad, for example, might actually have derived citizenship either at birth and they didn't know it or at some point before they turned 18. It's a very complicated analysis of how one derives citizenship. But assuming you did not accidentally derive citizenship, naturalization based on having a green card previously is that final step. Often on the podcast, I'm talking about these cases involving long-term lawful permanent residents, green card holders, who've been here maybe since they were kids or since they were young adults, who've been here 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years sometimes, but they just never naturalized even though they were eligible. And lo and behold, long, long after they were eligible to naturalize, they commit some criminal activity or mess up in some other way that permits the U.S. government to deport them. So it is very much recommended that if you're eligible for citizenship, you do it. There's no loss from the U.S. standpoint. Some countries force you to give up your foreign citizenship if you naturalize. And of course, there are tax implications. But, you know, I see it too often on the podcast or even in, in my job, people who didn't naturalize when they could, and now they're in big trouble. I was curious about dual citizenship. So I asked Kevin to talk a little bit about that. America will let you be a citizen, I think, of as many countries as you want, including the U.S., but it's the other countries that sometimes care. Not all of them. Some of them care. I'm not sure which ones do and which ones don't. 
but you know, it's nice to have more than one citizenship. I kind of wish I had it. It's just a good thing to have. But there's a final thing too. If you're in America, there are some temporary programs that are sometimes instituted. Temporary protected status it was all over the news during the Trump administration. That is people here that there's a determination by the Department of Homeland Security that it's too dangerous to send them back to their country, no matter how they got to America at the moment. And so we're not going to. We're going to allow them to have work authorization while they're here. For example, due to the earthquake in Haiti in 2009, Haiti got TPS, but you have to have been here at a certain time. There are a variety of countries with TPS. DACA is similar. DACA is a temporary thing that only certain people are eligible for. But it's not really a status. It's a decision by DHS not to deport these million of individuals who came here as children at the given moment. We'll probably have a DACA decision at the Supreme Court again within the next couple of years. So there are all these other weird programs once you're in America, usually. And that's why being an immigration lawyer can be so fun and stressful. It sounds like there's lots of nuance. What I'm hearing is that there's sounds like a permission to just be here or reside. And then the authorization to work is separate. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, with a green card, you don't need separate employment authorization, but with everything else you do, or almost everything else you do. So, I mean, there's, are you permitted to even enter the U.S.? Once you are, when do you have to leave? And then there's other things like once you're here, are you permitted to be here? If so, are you permitted to work? And even if both of those things are true, do you have a path to adjusting to a green card status? Not all people who are here legally have that path. We talked about visas being temporary. Is the green card permanent residency? Yes, the green card is permanent residency. The card itself must be renewed every 10 years. But just like you and I are U.S. citizens, even if we don't have U.S. passports, a lawful permanent resident remains an LPR, even if their green card is expired, until an immigration judge says you're not anymore. The law requires that they have a green card, but they remain a lawful permanent resident until an immigration judge says they're not anymore. And is the only difference between permanent residency and citizenship the ability to vote? The ability to vote, the ability to sit on a jury. There are some other differences. But most importantly, you can't deport a U.S. citizen. I mean, that is the ultimate thing, right? For example, forget about criminal activity. If you go back to your home country because a family member died or you have an emergency and you're there for over six months, even if you've been in the country for 30 years, it's possible that you won't be let back in. Even with permanent residency. That's correct. So, you know. We would never recommend that people don't get citizenship. You still and like need, you said, yeah. it, and it might change, right? So things are always moving. There's different court decisions. As you mentioned, the executive branch makes lots of policy decisions that could impact that. So maybe let's talk about some of the pitfalls. Like you said, if you've got the opportunity, you may want to go ahead and take it to go ahead and get that green card or that citizenship. What are some common pitfalls that you find in your practice that people make that they could avoid? The biggest pitfall that we always see, and don't get me wrong, I'm biased, but the biggest pitfall we always see is somebody trying to do it themselves or going to what we call a notario. It's a Spanish word, but as my understand it, like someone who calls themselves a notario in 
in a in a Spanish country sometimes is considered like a super lawyer, like the lawyer's lawyer. But in America, notario is just Spanish for notary. There are people who get their notary license, put themselves out as a notario, put immigration on their storefront, and they're scam artists unlawfully practicing law, and they really screw people, and they take their money, and people get in really big trouble. So using a notario or doing it yourself can often be a very big problem, especially when you're applying to naturalize. Don't get me wrong. USCIS, the, the entity that adjudicates these applications, takes green card applications and other things very seriously. But when you apply to naturalize, that's when they really look at you. And they look at everything. And it, it is like going into the lion's den, in my opinion, to naturalize by yourself, also to apply for a green card, but really naturalization. Some of the other big pitfalls, no matter what you're doing, whether you're trying to come to America or in America, you always got to be cognizant that the adjudicator is trying to see if you have committed fraud in the past, that you've misrepresented something in any immigration application or any interaction with the U.S. government. It's a standard that you or I, Santiago, probably couldn't meet ourselves if we were ever held to it. But that is what is being held to by non-citizens. Always on the lookout for fraud. Another horrible pitfall we see for people in America is false claims to citizenship. As an immigration attorney, one of the things I specialize in is the criminal immigration analysis. What are the consequences of a conviction for your immigration status? That's one of the things that I'm a bit of an expert in. And I can make creative arguments that might win for some of the for some pretty bad crimes that you'd be surprised to hear. But if you have falsely claimed to be a U.S. citizen, even by mistake, even thinking you were a U.S. citizen, there's almost nothing I can do for you because Congress changed the law in 1997. And that goes for voting as well. Unlawful voting. The consequences are so serious. For example, there, are, there used to be at least DMVs in America where, you know, you can get a driver's license if you got a green card. And there were DMVs. These are like low-level state court offices, if you think about what a DMV is, whose mission was to promote more people to register to vote. And they would register these non-citizens to vote when they got their driver's license. And maybe the non-citizen had to check a box that said yes to being a U.S. citizen and did it without thinking. And if they do that, they are in deep trouble. And if they vote, because then they get that voter card in the mail and they don't think, you know, I, I don't know how many people, how many Americans know that only U.S. citizens can vote. I would guess that there are hundreds of thousands who actually might not know that if asked, for example. It's a really good point. So they but may you, inadvertently be breaking the law that jeopardizes their whole process. That's, that's right. Jeopardizing their process is putting it lightly. I mean, they might be screwed forever, as to put it bluntly. With so many twists and turns along the immigration paths, I could see why hiring a good immigration attorney makes sense. I wondered if there were any steps along the way that someone could do themselves. It's always a risk. If you are going to be filling out, you know, an I-90 application to, for your green card to get your green card again, that's a pretty simple form. But even then, you might want to talk to an attorney to make sure that there's not something in your background that might want to stay your hand in filling out that form. These forms get kind of complicated. And like I said, even if it's an inadvertent error, it is possible that down the line, USCIS will take the position that you intentionally misrepresented something that might have serious consequences. So 
I mean, but also I'm an attorney, but I could never recommend that someone not do this with an attorney. I'm sure that the price range kind of varies. And you talked about people being in very different economic situations. Some people may come to this country with just the clothes that they're wearing. What can folks expect with respect to price range? And can you offer maybe some creative approaches that people can still get legal representation that don't have a lot of money? I do think with immigration, with any law, you kind of pay for what you get. I'll, I won't lie that our firm is one of the more expensive firms. Our founding partner has appeared before the Supreme Court three times, for example. He's been at it for 40 years, and he wrote the book on immigration. And because of that, people want to hire us, and you know, we are who we are. Some of our cases are charged hourly, and some are flat fees. You know, if I were to go, for example, if I were with an immigration attorney and I was in a consultation as a non-citizen, and that immigration attorney told me, I'll do your removal case, the case where if you lose, you're going to get deported. I'll do your removal case before an immigration judge for a flat fee of $5,000. I, you know, I, how do they make it so cheap? It's because they're not really paying so much attention to your case. They're probably not going to submit a legal brief. They might not un turn over every stone and they probably don't know the law as well as some other attorneys. So you do get what you pay for often in immigration. It can get expensive. Our firm does do payment plans and they can be quite generous. And we do try to, we will we'll cut bills if we believe that warranted. There is a, an entity called Capital Good Fund that actually I've worked with on my podcast that does give low interest immigration loans. They're not available to do it in all states, but they have quite a few states. And so there are things like that as well. And then, of course, there are the wonderful nonprofits like Catholic Charities and the like that will do a pro bono case and they will do it great. Those are great attorneys who are doing the work because they want to do it. But they have only have so much capacity. Their funding is based on, you know, nonprofit funding and the like. Does it make sense to pull maybe some cases together if you're in a family, for example? Yeah, I believe that most immigration attorneys would probably give a discount for multiple cases from a family. More likely is that you'll have a principal person trying to get a green card and he or she'll have derivative family members joining them like children. And so that is multiple cases, but like it's not, it's really all the same case. I was thinking of either siblings or cousins yeah. and that kind of thing. We certainly would give a discount or something like that. I imagine most immigration attorneys would. So, Kevin, this has been really great information. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Is there anything that's coming to mind that you'd like to share with the audience? Sure. Immigration in America has become complicated because of competing interests in Washington, D.C., and how the laws have been passed, and because immigration has become so political. Yeah, we immigration attorneys like to remind people that it was Ronald Reagan and the Republicans that granted amnesty, actual amnesty to individuals in the 1970s and the early 80s, and then also granted essentially a blanket green card program called the SAW program for agricultural workers in the 80s. And that Ronald Reagan used his final speech as president to, to wax lovingly about the virtues of immigration and the character of America. And now, of course, immigration is used as a political football. So immigration today has become something that, that, that it really isn't under the law. 
And I think we have to try to do two things. We have to try to separate the politics from the law. And, you know, remember that this is a legal framework like any other legal framework, filing your taxes or complying with any other law and that there are legal pathways to it and that there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it complies with the law. But second, that, you know, take a step back and think about what does our country want and what are our values? Are we a country of immigrants? Are we a country that brings in the world's huddled masses as the Statue of Liberty would have us do? Or are we more like the characters in Gangs of New York, right? The anti-Catholic gang, if you've seen Gangs of New York, who was, who at the time in the mid-1800s was very much against Catholic immigration and thought that they were bringing in diseases and changing the character of America. Are we more like that? Or are we more like the Statue of Liberty people? It has been, again, in a very informative session. And if folks want to get in touch with you, Kevin, or reach your firm, what's the best way to do that? I appreciate that. My email address is kgreg at kktplaw.com. That's K-G-R-E-G-G at K-K-T-P as in pig, L-A-W dot com. Or go to kktplaw.com, check us out. Check out the podcast immigration review on that website or wherever podcasts are found. If you type in immigration review or Kurzban Law Firm into Google, you'll find us and me. So it's been a pleasure to be on your show, Santiago. Everybody give the podcast a listen if you want to see what that legal game is like and how it impacts politics as well and how it might help you or your family member. Fantastic. Thanks again, Kevin. Thank you, Santiago. For the outro music, I just couldn't resist playing the immigrant song albeit with a Mexican twist. The excerpt is from a song called The Immigrant Song, but performed by Metalachi, source Yardart Entertainment. I think it reflects the creative blend of cultures that often results from immigration. I hope you enjoy it. To learn more about this show, visit www.immigrantsjourneys.fm. 